want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to James, James chapter 1. Today we are beginning a nine-part series where we're studying verse by verse through the entire book of James. James has five chapters in it. Every single chapter is power-packed with a lot of practical, life-transforming truth. I love the book of James. In part, I love the book of James because it's so, so down-to-earth. You can read through the books, and it talks about trials, and it talks about how to overcome temptation. It talks about what the difference is between doing the word and just hearing the word. It talks about the difference between true religion and just false religion. It talks about the issue of bigotry and favoritism and economic disequality within the church and believers. It talks about the difference between faith and deeds and and, and what does it mean to really have faith and what do deeds have to play into and is your faith really real? It talks about taming this powerful instrument called the tongue and the power of the tongue to start a fire or to bring down the power of heaven. It talks about two kinds of wisdoms and quarreling and disputing and where they come from and how to deal with it. It talks about what it, what it takes to actually be able to make the devil run and how to submit yourself to God. It talks about making plans about the future, how to make them, how not to make them. It talks about what happens when the rich oppress the poor, when there's injustice. It talks about how to handle suffering. It talks about what kind of prayer actually changes the weather and is able to bring down the power of God. I mean, there is a lot in this book. And we're going to be going verse by verse through the book of James on Sunday morning. And I believe that if you stick with it, all of these messages that you're going to come out of this with a greater depth of understanding, with with some practicality, knowing how to apply your faith to everyday living. Now, as we jump into the book of James, there's a couple questions I think we need to answer. Every time there's a book in the Bible that you begin to study, you have to ask, well, who was the author? Who was it written to? When was it written? And what was the issue that it was written to deal with? So let's start with the author. Obviously, we know from the title of the book that it was written by a fellow by the name of James. Jimmy. Jaime. Now, here's the thing about James, is that as you look in the New Testament, there's actually several James that are prominent in the New Testament. So the question is, which James wrote the book of James? Well, I'm not going to bore you with all the uh, mechanics of how to figure out which James wrote the book, but most scholars believe that the James that wrote the book of James was a man that was also known as James the Just. His claim to fame was that he came from a very, very important family. In fact... He was the half-brother of Jesus. If you read in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, or Mark chapter 6, verse 3, you'll discover that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. I call them half-brothers because I believe in the virgin birth. I believe that Jesus' brothers and sisters 
where were from Joseph and Mary, but Jesus was only from Mary because he, was, he, he experienced a virgin birth. It means that the seed of man was not who impregnated Mary, but it was a divine act of God. And so uh, he was born of a virgin, so it would only make him a half-brother. Now imagine if you had a brother that was older than you, that was really good, and you were compared to you may have thought that you had it bad at your household. Imagine Jesus being your older brother. <laughs> Jimmy, why can't you be more like Jesse, Jesus? I mean, why can't? He never seems to have a bad attitude. He always seems to be doing the right thing. He always seems to be helping people. And can't you be like Jesus? So imagine that, having Jesus as your older brother. Scripture tells us that in the beginning, Jesus' brothers did not really believe or accept him as the Messiah. But later on, as they experienced more of his miraculous power, and as they saw his works, they came to believe in him, not only as their brother, but as the Messiah, as Jesus. They saw his miracles, they experienced the resurrection, and became some of the most fervent followers of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. James, it tells us, history tells us, that he was a man of much prayer. The book of James was written at about 448 or 50 AD. If you follow it chronologically, uh, Jesus was about 33 years old when he was crucified. And so... We don't know the exact date, but it was in the 30s A.D. that Jesus was crucified. So if this was written in 48 A.D., it was about 15 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus that the book of James was written by his older brother. They say that James prayed so much that his knees uh, had calluses on them. In fact, he became known to some as James Camel Knees. Have you ever seen the knees of a camel and how they're full of calluses? And some people believe that James spent so much time on his knees that his knees were kind of like the knees of a camel. They were calloused that way. Uh, history also tells us that James, uh, legend tells us that James was pushed off of the temple. The way he died, he was pushed off of the temple. When he fell, he didn't die. And as he lay there, on his deathbed, having fall, being pushed from the temple, they beat him to death as he prayed for the salvation of those that beat him. He was a significant, powerful figure in the early church, a man that led, a man that had much leadership and was used to lead the early church of God. And he was writing to people that were going through some tough times, difficulty. And he was trying to teach them what it meant to have real faith and apply it to everyday situations. And so, I begin in James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the fact that he doesn't introduce himself as the half-brother of Jesus. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus. I love that. Because he's acknowledging, uh, he's not just my half-brother, he's my Lord. And I fully embrace that. He is the Messiah. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The 12 tribes, he's referring to the people of Israel. If you remember Jacob, 
had 12 sons, uh, and um, Joseph and Benjamin were the youngest of those sons. His 10 older sons became the 10 tribes. His two younger sons became the two tribes. Among all of them, they became the 12 tribes of Israel, and um, most of the nation of Israel came from those 12 tribes. So when he says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, at this time, Christians were mainly Jewish. This is before the gospel had spread radically to the Gentiles. So he's writing mainly to Jewish believers that are scattered among the nations and are going through a difficult time. And he says, greetings. And his first topic, the first topic he really wants to challenge them with is the topic of trials. Now, I don't have to do a survey to ask how many of you have ever had a bad day. In fact, some of you would say to me, today is a bad day, Pastor. I don't have to ask how many of you have ever been through trials because every one of us have. I don't have to ask how many of you have had tough times in your life where you've thrown your arms up in the air and you've said to God, God, how much more do I have to go through? I mean, one trial after another, how much can one person handle? How many of you know what I'm talking about? James is talking to a group of people about the issue of tough times, the issue of trials, and really how to turn trials into something good in your life, how to make the most out of the trials that are given to you. And if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to just to jot this down. I'm going to talk to you about how to turn tough times into personal growth. Number one, there's five things you need to keep in mind if you're going to turn a tough time or a trial into an opportunity for you to grow. Number one, maintain a positive outlook in your testing time, knowing that there is a purpose. There is a purpose. There is a purpose in your pain. Notice what it says in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Hold on. Put the pause button on. Stop a moment. Unbelievable. What are you saying, Lord? I mean, how unnatural is that? How unnatural is it to have pure joy when you run into a trial? It's like if you went into the parking lot and you looked at your car and someone just sideswiped your car while you were in church and left you with a flat tire and you were to see it and you were to say, yes, Woo. thank you, Lord, I got a trial coming. Wow, look at that. This is a great opportunity for me. I mean, it's just not natural. Some of you are already thinking, maybe I should check my car. No, no, it's okay, I think. <laughs> Our natural response is, goodness sakes, why? Lord, I'm worshiping you in church, and they didn't even leave a note. <laughs> I bet you it was Pastor Mark. <laughs> you know, you, you, our natural response is that we're not happy. We wonder why. We get a bad attitude. We start grumbling and complaining because none of us want to go through a hard time. None of us like trials. None of us like testing. So it seems really, it seems really not very practical. It seems unreasonable 
that James would be telling the listeners or the readers to consider it pure joy whenever they face a trial. But let's explain this a little bit because I want you to understand what he's really saying. First of all, I want you to understand that joy is not happiness and that joy is not an emotion, joy is an attitude. The Bible never tells us to feel something. The Bible never says feel happy. The Bible may say be joyful, but it won't tell you feel happy because you can't really control your emotions. Your emotions flow. They just come out of you. And so the Bible never commands us to feel anything. The Bible commands us to do things and to choose things. Uh, Some of you may say, well, pastor, doesn't the Bible say to love? And isn't love an emotion? No, love is not emotion. Love is a choice. The Hollywood version of love is an emotion. And I sat down with young couples, and they'll come to me, and I'll say, okay, so you decided to get married? And they'll say, yeah, we're in love. (laughs) Well, what what does that mean? And she says to me, she looks, bats her eyes at her, at her handsome boba. She says, well, when he walks in the room, my heart just palpitates. And he says, and you know, when she walks in the room, the hairs in the back of my neck, they just stand up and, you know, we are just in love. But they define love as an emotion. The sad thing is that oftentimes those same couples that say they fell in love two years later into their marriage will come to me and want to meet in the same office and say, Pastor, we want out because we fell out of love. And she'll say, I don't love him anymore. Why should I stay married? I fell in love. That's why I married him. I fell out of love. That's why I want to divorce him because it's not there anymore. So therefore, almost as though they have no choice in the matter. And I want to tell you that love is not an emotion. Love is a choice. God never says, feel love. It never says, husbands, feel love towards your wives. It says, husbands, love your wives. Love is an action. Love is a commitment. There are times when that action, that commitment will bring about a lot of emotion. But there's other times where you will love without feeling an emotion. There are times I wake up, I look at my wife and I think, wow, I love this woman, man. I just, just, whoa, I'm, you know, I'm romantic and my heart is palpitating. And there's other times I wake up and there's nothing. (laughs) But you know what? I still love her. Because I'm committed to love her. And there'll be times when my feelings are there and times when my feelings are not there, but I am committed to love her. And as I choose to love her, the the train of emotions follow that. And I've been married now, it'll be next year, 25 years. And I think, yeah, absolutely. And because I've chosen love and because she's chosen love, I believe the best days of our, that I'm living in the best days of our marriage and looking forward to the next season of our marriage being even better. Why? It's a commitment, a choice to love, not necessarily a dependence on the feeling. And so it is in your walk with God. Oftentimes, God calls us to serve him not out of how we feel, but he calls us to serve him out of obedience. And so, James is saying here, 
I want you to consider it pure joy, unadulterated, high-octane joy. The attitude of joy, which means contentment, well-being, I'm happy, I'm glad. I want you to consider, that's the thought process, not feel, consider it pure joy. Choose to be in pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Now, though that doesn't seem like a natural response, he explains to us why we can have that kind of response. He says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Verse 3 gives us the reason, because, because, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Here's the thing. You can have joy because you know that the trial you're going through right now is producing something good in your life. It's not going to waste. To me, it's like having a baby. How many mothers do we have in this morning, this afternoon? Yeah, okay. Now, those of you that are mothers, you understand that childbirth is painful. That's an understatement, isn't it? I mean, it's painful. You go through childbirth and it is, there is some pain in that labor. And I know I was there beside my wife three different times. And never did she say, oh, don't worry, just go have a coffee, come back. Oh, it'll be, you know, you can hold the baby. No, 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 that wasn't, that wasn't the scenario there. No, not at all. I mean, there was pain in that labor. And I think I still have marks in my hand from the, the, the fingernails gripping my hand so tight because there was pain in that labor. But the pain was durable in part because we know that the pain is giving birth to something that will bring great joy, that there is, there's a purpose in this pain. When you go to the hospital afterwards, people don't focus on the pain. They focus on the product of the pain that's the child, the baby. Uh, when you go to the hospital, most of us don't just like disregard the baby and say, well, tell me about your pain and what a sad day this has been, right? I mean, it must have been very, very difficult and poor you and, and oh, I'm just grieving for you. No, 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 no. We go into that room and we look at the baby. We barely talk about the pain because we're so happy that there's a baby there. And we focus on the baby and we hold the baby and we say how cute the baby is. Half the times we're lying, right? Because... I mean, seriously, most babies that are really just newborn babies, they're not that cute. I mean, let's be honest about it. They've just been through the birth canal, so their heads are a little bit weird shaped, and they got sort of different colors, and, you know, they're a little bit scaly, and when they first come out, they're all wet, and not, I don't know, they're just not that cute. They, they grow into cuteness, but when you go to visit the hospital, the entire attention is on the joy that's produced. Even though someone's been through extreme pain, the focus is not the pain. The focus is the product of the pain. In the same way, James is saying, I know that you will go through a difficult time in your trial, but you can have joy in the midst of your trial knowing that something is being birthed in the middle of this pain. 
And what's being birthed in the middle of this pain will give you great joy because what's being birthed in the middle of this pain is an incredible gift to you. What is being birthed in the middle of the pain that's an incredible gift? Well, it's not going to seem that exciting to you. The word is perseverance. You say, okay, pastor, perseverance. I mean, if you said a check, if you said something a little bit more, I'd want it, but I mean, what's so great about perseverance? Oh, oh the, in, herein lies the secret. You may not realize this, but perseverance is an incredible, an incredible vehicle by which maturity and completeness travels into your life. In fact, without perseverance, you cannot change. With perseverance, you start changing and maturing and becoming a different person. So through your trials, you're given the key of perseverance, and perseverance is the key to change your life and creating you a different individual. If you're taking notes, jot this down. It tells us in verse 4 what exactly perseverance, it tells us what perseverance does. In verse 4 it says, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What he's telling us, what James is telling us is that you have to go through trials because what trials do is trials cause you to have perseverance. And if you have perseverance, perseverance allows you to become mature and complete and not lack anything in your life. Here's how it works. Jot down this number two. Keep doing what is right with an attitude of joy so that maturity can keep developing. Listen, some of us want to grow, and some of us want to change. And you may come to God and say, oh, God, oh, I wish I were more spiritual. Oh, I wish I loved you more. Oh, I wish I had more patience. Oh, I wish I had more compassion for people. Oh, God, please help me grow. And then suddenly your car breaks down. You say, oh, God, why are you giving me trials? Oh, God. God is answering your prayer. Do you realize that you cannot change without hardship? Do you realize that the way that you change is through difficulty and hardship and testing? That, that the very prayer that you want, oh, God, change me, means that oftentimes God will send you in a path of difficulty because it's through difficulty that you change. You cannot change without being tested. You cannot develop love. You cannot develop faith. You cannot develop endurance. You cannot develop uh, maturity. You cannot be more like Jesus unless you go through times where your faith is tested, where you're challenged, where it's difficult, where you have to believe God. That's the way you change. No trial, no change. No difficulty, no growth. If you've ever been to the gym and worked out, especially if you work out with weights, 
what, what, what a weight or gym instructor will tell you is that in order to gain muscle, you work out and your muscles break down because of the workout. And then in the reparation process with some protein, your muscles rebuild themselves stronger than they were before. But you cannot build bigger muscles without, first of all, going through the pain of breaking those muscles down. Are you tracking with me? It's the same in your spiritual life. James is telling us that you can be joyful because you know that this trial is going to cause you to develop perseverance. And if you have perseverance and you endure, that perseverance will, will here's what it says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, if I were to ask you here today, I would say, how many of you want to just have all that God wants for you? You'd probably raise your hand. And how many of you want to grow into maturity and be like Jesus? You'd probably raise your hand. And how many of you want to have everything that Jesus had in his character and grow to be strong in your faith? You'd probably raise your hand. But if I asked you how many of you want trials and difficulty and heartache, probably no one would raise their hand. The pathway to maturity is the pathway of challenges and difficulty and trials. Now, just because you have difficulties and challenges and trials doesn't mean you're mature. It's the way you handle your trials. Some people have a lot of trials, but they're still immature. Like, oh, you're from crisis to crisis. You'd think they'd be giants by this time, but they're still immature. They're still in the same place they were before. And every time I run into them, they have another trial, another chaos, and another crisis. I would think by now they'd be like Jesus. They'd be pushing up at least to be like the Apostle Paul by now with all the trials in your life. But trials by themselves do not produce maturity. It's how you handle the trials that produces maturity. Are you tracking with me? Uh, Some of us, by the way, just because you've been in Christ for 15 years or been a Christian for 15 years does not mean you are mature. The elapsing of time does not make you mature. It's what you do with the time that makes you mature. Some people say, well, Pastor, I've been a Christian for 25 years. 25. Yet, you look at that individual And they're still struggling with the same things they were struggling when they had been in Christ two years. They're just repeating it. Another year, another year, another year, the same struggle. Because what causes us to mature is that when we choose an attitude of joy and we're in the middle of a trial and we persevere in doing what's right in the middle of the trial and we don't bail out, we don't choose the easy solution, but we stay with we know what, what we know is right and we persevere. This word persevere in the Greek is hup, hupomoneo. 
Say that with me. It's a great sounding word. Hupomoneo. Oh, come on. You could do better than that. Hupomoneo. There you go. There you go. Now you're sounding like Greek scholars. What this word means, it's not this passive waiting or patience. It's not the kind of patience you need in the doctor's office where you're waiting for your turn and it's like, okay, is it my turn yet? Is it my turn? It's not that kind of perseverance. It's the kind of perseverance that you need when you're running a marathon. It's an active perseverance that means keep doing it even though it's hard. The word actually means to come up under something. So the idea is that there is a weight on my shoulder and it's a heavy weight, but I am standing up under the pressure even though it's heavy I am not giving in. I'm not bailing out and getting out from under it. I'm under the pressure of it, but I'm standing strong. I'm resisting even though I'm tired. It's stretching me. It's difficult, but I'm hanging in there. I'm saying, I will continue to bear this weight. Oh, God, give me the strength. Give me the power. I will resist. I will hang in there as long as I have to until you accomplish what you're going to accomplish. That's perseverance. So what it says is this, listen, it says that we are to persevere until perseverance has worked its full effect in our life. You, do you want to know why there are so many immature Christians? You really want to know why? There are many immature Christians because many of us, when it gets tough, we quit. When it gets difficult, we bail out. When it's painful, we, we get out of the situation. And so what happens is we have to repeat the same lesson over and over because we keep quitting when it gets hard. It's like going through first grade. You've been in school 10 years, but you still haven't passed first grade. Because every time first grade gets hard and you have the homework, you just say, I quit. And so then when you start over, you start first grade again. And you start, it's like reading through the Bible in a year. No, I'm not even going to ask you. <laughs> Come on, okay, I'm going to, how many of you determine I'm going to read through the whole Bible? How many of you have ever said, I'm going to read through the whole Bible in a year? How many of you get to Leviticus and then quit? <laughs> how about it? And the next year, I'm going to do it this year. And so you're really good at Genesis, Exodus. You've read Genesis and Exodus about 20 times, but you never get through Leviticus because you keep quitting. You see, that's the way it is in our life, that oftentimes we start off, but we quit when it gets hard, and so we have to go back to square one of our maturity, and so we don't move on to maturity like God wants us to move on to maturity. We don't learn the lessons he wants us to learn because we keep repeating and quit we keep bailing out when it gets hard. The only way that you're going to mature is that when you stick through it, even when it's difficult, which leads me to my third point. Third point, learn to ask God for wisdom to navigate the challenges of your trial without doubting his goodness. Look at what it says. So, verse 5 if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom for what? 
wisdom to navigate our way through a trial. Have you ever been in a very difficult situation and you say, I don't know what to do? In the middle of a trial, you wonder, do I go left? Do I go right? How do I handle this? You need wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So if you're in the middle of a trial and you're choosing joy and you say, God, I want to do it your way, but you say, I, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm stuck. I'm not really sure if I should do this or do that or which way to go. The Bible says you should go directly to God. God, here I am. I'm stuck. It's hard. I'm not sure what I should do. But I want you, O oh Lord, to give me wisdom so I know what to do in this difficult situation. And I love God's response. Because here's what the Bible says that God does. It says that God, first of all, he gives generously of his wisdom. He doesn't say, well, here's a little salt of wisdom. Here's a little bit, not too much. No, no, no. Generously means he gives you all the wisdom you need. Generously, he pours it out. Ask God and he gives generously. Without finding fault. You know what fight, fault finding is? Have you ever gone to ask someone for a favor? And they say, yeah, well, you know, last week you did this. And you know, last time I loaned you something you didn't do. And so they go through this whole litany of why they shouldn't do it. And then they give it to you. By that time, you just say, well, keep it, right? <laughs> and your grandmother one time, she, you know, you know. God doesn't do that. God doesn't, when you come asking for wisdom, saying, God, please, I need wisdom. What should I do? God doesn't say, you know what? In the last two months, you missed church one time. That's a 25% deduction on your wisdom, quotia. Or, hey, you know, three days ago, you lusted. I saw you looking at that girl with a miniskirt. You know, you, your head moved. And, and, okay, that's a 10% deduction on your wisdom. And because of that, I'm going to withhold wisdom from you. No, no, that's not the way God operates. God doesn't find fault or a reason not to give you wisdom. He looks at you and he wants to give you wisdom. He desires to. He wants to be generous. All he asks of you is one thing. It tells us, listen, he gives it, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all that he does. What God says is all I want from you is one thing. I want you to believe that I can give you wisdom. I want you to believe that I have the answers. I want you to believe that my way is the best way. All I'm asking is that you believe. All I'm asking is that you trust me. And if you trust me and believe, I will give you wisdom. I will pour it out. I won't hold it back. I won't ask you to be perfect. All I want is someone that says, I really trust God. I really believe. 
Not, well, you know, I don't have to trust you or trust my counselor or my mother-in-law or my friend or the guy at the bar that gave me a piece of advice. No, 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 no. Are you going to believe that God really has the answers? God is looking for people that say, I will trust you, God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's what God's looking for. Someone that says, I believe you, God. I trust you. Number four. If you're writing this down, write it down. Do not rely on your resources to get you through the seasons of challenge. He tells us that if we doubt when we ask God for wisdom, we're going through a trial, we choose joy. I'm going to be joyful when I'm going through this trial because I know what it produces, perseverance. And if I persevere through this, God's going to change me and I'm going to be mature, not lacking anything. But when I'm in the middle of the trial and don't know what to do, I ask God for wisdom and God gives me wisdom, but I have to believe because if I don't believe, I'm like the wave of the sea. I'm tossed here and there. I'm double-minded, unstable in all my ways. But when I'm going through this time of trial, I may be tempted to try to solve this problem by depending on my own resources. So, verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like the wild flower. James says, what happens if you're poor and you run into a trial, you have a tendency to think, if I just had money, I could get out of this problem. If I just had money, I'd hire a lawyer. If I just had money, I'd get a better doctor. If I just had money, I'd get a therapist. If I just had money, I'd move to a better neighborhood. If I just had money, my car wouldn't be broken down. If I just had money, I could send my kids to a better school and they wouldn't be having these problems they're having. Hey, if I just had money, I could dress better and then I'd feel better about myself and I'd have more confidence. If I just had money... The person that's in a poor situation, they think that their problems would be solved with a little bit more money. And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if that's what you think. But how about it? Think of your current problems. And isn't it true that most of you here look at some of the problems you're going through and you think 10,000 would really help out? (laughs) I mean, that would solve a lot of what I'm going through. How about it? Think about it. Don't raise your hand, but think about it. Isn't that true? Now... James says, if you're poor, rejoice in your high position because ultimately, God is your resource. And he has everything that you need. And he's the God of the universe. And he has all power and all authority. And God can supply all the things that you need because God is your dependent. He is your resources. He is ultimately your source. You say, Pastor, I believe it, but I still like those $10,000. It'd still help out. (laughs) And the rich, he says to the rich, rejoice in your low position. Why? Because if you're rich, the tendency is to lean on your wealth 
and to think your confidence is that as long as I have money, I can solve my problems because I have money. And so to the rich, he says, hey, rejoice that really your riches can go in a moment. They're like a flower that the sun comes out and scorches it and it's gone in a moment. In other words, your riches will, can fade away. Your riches can be gone tomorrow. So rejoice that ultimately your source is God and even though you have riches, they're going to go in a heartbeat. And the poor, he says, rejoice that even though you don't have riches, you are exalted because God is your source. Ultimately, what he's saying is that we're all in the same plane. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, our dependence is still in God. And that happens in the church, you know. Now, we have, a, we have several thousand people at this church, and there's a, sometimes there's a disparity between levels of income. And you may come to the church and you may park your little junker um, somewhere in the parking lot. And hey, it's, it's a car, right? And it gets you around. And so it's got 120,000 miles on it. But hey, it, it runs. But you may be tempted to come and park next to someone who's got a Lexus or a nicer vehicle and say, well, I could praise God too if I had that car. I could rejoice too if I lived in that house. I'd be happy in Jesus too. (laughs) And you may look at someone that has more resources and kind of envy what they have. And someone with more resources can look at what they have and, and become dependent on what they have. But ultimately what God says is the playing field is the same. That ultimately maturity, whether you have money or don't have money, maturity comes from God and no other source. Ultimately, the rich have to depend on God and the poor have to depend on God. And let me tell you something. If you're, if you're a little bit poor or your income's a little bit tighter, let me tell you, it may be easier for you to become more spiritual than it is for someone that has a lot of money. Because Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why? Money's not bad. Money's neutral. But the more money we accumulate, it's easier to depend more and more on that money and less and less on God. And James actually talks a lot about it in the book of James. He, later on in this chapter, chapter 2, he talks about rich and poor in the church. And he said, hey, there's a problem if a very poor person comes in and you say, hey, sit in the back. And someone with money comes in and is wealthy. And you say, hey, come here. We got this special seat for you. You know, sit right here in the front. And you treat them differently. It says, you know, favoritism should not exist in the house of God should not exist in the house of God because in the eyes of God, we are all in the same plane. Now, he ends by giving one last exhortation, which is in uh, verse 12. He tells us in verse 11, the sun rises, scorches heat, the blossom falls. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Verse 5. Remember that blessings and reward follow those who stand the test. This section ends with this 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres 
hupomoneos under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised for those who love him. Listen, there is a blessing. There is favor at the end of every trial. There's favor. Some of you here may be facing the greatest trial of your life. And maybe you've been tempted to bail out the easy way. And God is saying, do what's right, even when it's hard. Come on, keep doing what's right. Persevere. Do it with joy. Don't lose your joy in the middle of the trial. Ask God for wisdom, but keep persevering. Because at the end of the trial, at the end, if you persevere, if you don't bail out, if you don't give up, if you don't sabotage and short-circuit the process of maturity in your life, at the end, you will not only gain character and transformation and maturity in your life, but you will also get the reward from God because God rewards faithfulness and perseverance in our life. Listen, you may not want to hear this, but some of you have to hear this. There are some that the greatest reward they receive, not in this life, but in the next. Hebrews chapter 12 says, and some were sawed in two, and some lived in caves, and some's heads were chopped off. And some lived in poverty, persecuted because they followed Jesus. And the world was not worthy of them. And they received their inheritance, their reward, their blessing on the other side. Now we all want to receive it on this side, don't we? We want to receive it on this side. And I believe, I believe it comes on this side with people that persevere. But I want to say this, not always. Not always. There are some who've been martyrs for Christ. There are some right now who are in prison for following Jesus. Do you realize that? There's some people right now that their only crime was that they preached the gospel and they're, they're in some prison in, in, in China, separated from their family, in, in devastating conditions. Their only crime, they chose to follow Jesus. There have been people in prison for 20, 30 years, separated from their family. Some people would look and say, where was God in all of that? And I want to tell you, listen, God is there. God is in that dark cell in the middle of the prison. And I want to tell you something. Every suffering, every heartache, every difficult that anybody has gone through for the sake of Christ will be richly rewarded. God, they have not been abandoned. God, they have not, they do not go unnoticed. God is faithful in the end and they will receive a reward. <laughs> 